Welcome to Investing Insights for the Modern Investor, a quarterly podcast to help you become a better investor so that you can grow and protect your wealth. I cover investment topics including portfolio design, cutting-edge investment strategies, risk management, and any topic relevant to creating better long-term investing results. This podcast is a companion to Three Summit Investment Management's quarterly Investing Insight newsletter. For more information about Three Summit Investment Management and to subscribe to Investing Insights, please go to our website at www.threesummit.com. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Investments involve risk. Be sure to first consult with a qualified investment manager or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This podcast is not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. I am Dan Irvine, the founder and principal of Three Summit Investment Management. Thank you for listening. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me again for another episode of Investing Insights for the Modern Investor. Today, I'm going to discuss an extremely timely and important topic that all investors navigating these markets should understand and manage going forward. I'm going to speak about several charts for this topic that you might really benefit from looking at while I discuss them. Now, as usual, I will explain the charts so that you don't need to actually have them in front of you. But if you'd like to follow along, you can get them on our website in the show notes. Go to threesummit.com forward slash podcast and navigate to episode 10 and the charts will be sitting there for you. Today, we're going to focus on the U.S. stock market. We are going to dive deeply into the S&P 500. Investors have been surfing the epic wave of a record market recovery from the deep market bottom that we experienced earlier this year. Since the lows in late March, the S&P 500 has generated cumulative returns of more than 43% as of the end of October. Not only has the S&P 500 earned back all the losses, which exceeded a drawdown of negative 31% from the first quarter, but the market also achieved new record highs in August. The recovery rally has been a welcome relief from what most people would probably agree has thus far been an epically terrible year, and I know I put myself in that category. Of course, it is 2020, so there must be more to the markets than new record highs and so far positive year-to-date returns. And there is. Markets this year have not been normal. Economic conditions in the U.S. and around the world are not very good right now. We believe investment risk is very elevated at this present time, which you can read about in our previous quarter's market commentary on our website, if you'd like. In our latest market commentary, the focus was on economic risk. But today, what I want to focus on is an emerging source of investment risk that has been sneaking up on investors with very little notice. There is something wrong with the S&P 500. The S&P 500 is the most common proxy for the broad stock market in the United States, 
Investors, policymakers, and business leaders all follow the index as a general measure of the real economy and the stock market. Throughout 2019 and accelerating this year, the S&P 500 has been building an imbalance that has become so pronounced the index has diverted from the underlying stock market and is therefore not currently a very good proxy for the U.S. stock market in general. The S&P 500 index is designed to select a sample of stocks that represent the broad market performance for U.S. large cap stocks. For a stock to be included in the index, a company must meet certain financial, fundamental, and governance requirements. Once a sample of acceptable stocks has been identified for inclusion in the index, each stock is then assigned a weighting representing the proportion it will make up of the total index portfolio. For the S&P 500 to be successful in its objective, to be a proxy for the total market of large capitalization stocks, each stock's weight in the index must accurately represent its impact on the total market. This is done by weighting each stock by its market capitalization or market cap. Market cap weighting makes sense because the larger a company is, the greater the influence the company would theoretically have on the performance of the broader stock market. And therefore, it requires a larger weighting in the index. Now, market cap weighting comes with risk. An index that weights stocks based on market cap can become very imbalanced when a small number of companies rise in value much faster than most of the other constituents in the index. Market cap weighting doesn't take into account if a company's value is justified. The methodology simply assumes that larger value companies are more influential in the economy and therefore they should be assigned larger weights in the index. If the imbalance between the market capitalization of a small concentration of companies becomes excessive relative to the rest of the stocks in the index, this very small concentration of stocks can begin to dominate the index and dilute the performance impact of the rest of the index constituents. When this happens, the risk to investors becomes elevated and the index can diverge from the underlying market and no longer become a good proxy for total stock market activity. Now I'm going to speak about the first chart that shows the concentration of the S&P 500 in the five highest weighted stocks over time, going back to 1979. The concentration of the largest five stocks in the S&P 500 today is really quite astonishing. If you're looking at the chart, you can see that the top five stocks make up 23% of the total S&P index. Now this is a record over the period that we analyzed. The median concentration of the top five stocks is just 12%, meaning the index is currently nearly twice as concentrated in the top five stocks as normal. Extreme market concentration is not the only form of risk that can arise in market cap weighted indexes. Usually, when stock concentration becomes extreme, so does sector concentration. Again, we are in uncharted territory. All five of the top stocks 
are technology-related companies. Currently, the top five stocks ordered from highest to lowest weight are Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, or Alphabet, and Facebook. These are all technology-related companies. Despite not all of them being classified as tech companies in the S&P 500 index, I think it'd be hard to argue against the fact that these companies trade like tech stocks. They have technology platforms and they have technology-like valuations. In 2000, the index reached historically high levels of concentration in the top five stocks driven by overvalued tech companies. Yet, in 2000, only three of the top five stocks were technology companies. Today, all five are technology-related companies. I want to introduce another chart now that highlights the extreme sector concentrations in the time periods corresponding to the three periods of extreme stock concentration that we reviewed in the previous chart. If you're following along with the chart, what we can see is that in 1979, stock concentration was extreme, as was the weighting of the energy sector. In both 2000 and today, what you can see in the chart is that we have extreme concentration in the technology sector. Moreover, we have almost reached the same concentration in the tech sector that was present during the tech bubble. Now, if you add Amazon, Google, and Facebook to the technology sector, which they aren't currently classified by the S&P as being tech stocks, we would be far above the concentration in the tech sector today than we were in 2000. Now, this fact might be considered an ominous parallel. And of course, our economy has changed and is more service-oriented even now than it was back in 2000. So a higher allocation to tech may not be surprising, but we may be at the threshold of another growing tech bubble. Now, the two charts that we've looked at and discussed are important, and you can glean some good insight from them. But what I want to do now is quantify how divergent the S&P 500 has become from the broader large cap stock market. And we can do this by evaluating the breadth of returns year to date of the individual constituents within the index. The S&P 500 has returned 2.77% this year through October 31st. Yet 52% of all the index constituents have not recovered the losses that they suffered in March. And they have negative returns year to date and 56% of index constituents have underperformed the total index. So what becomes clear from the analysis is that the S&P 500 has reached these levels of extreme concentration in the top five stocks and in the tech sector because of the almost bubble-like explosion in the value of tech companies, particularly in the biggest tech companies, including Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, and Google. Just like in 2000, the S&P 500 has diverged significantly from the underlying market of U.S. large cap stocks. In other words, the S&P 500 
at this present time is no longer a good proxy for the total market of large cap stocks in the US. The S&P 500 looks more like a momentum strategy than a market index or proxy strategy. And the reason for that is that the S&P 500 is really a concentrated bet in the largest tech companies and the tech sector more broadly, which have all experienced significant price momentum over the last year. Now I would like to discuss the impact that the concentration in the S&P 500 is having on investors and is likely to have on investors going forward for some time. If you are invested in US stocks, and you don't derive your stock exposure from just a single S&P 500 index fund, then you have probably felt the effects of the extreme concentration in the S&P 500 through underperformance. Investors that are more diversified and that are not willing to concentrate at least 23% of their portfolio in just five stocks are likely to be suffering underperformance relative to the S&P 500. One method that we can use to evaluate the potential performance impact that investors may be experiencing as a result of the high concentration in the S&P 500 is to chart the S&P 500 year to date versus the large cap mutual fund category that is tracked by Morningstar. Now that mutual fund category is just the universe of all large cap US mutual funds. Now the chart that we're going to review is in the show notes, but what we find is beginning at the market bottom at the end of March, the average diversified large cap fund consistently has fallen behind the market. Now this level of underperformance over such a short time period between the average large cap mutual fund and the S&P 500 index is rare but it corresponds perfectly with the dramatic increase in the index concentration in the top five stocks of the S&P 500. So to get a better idea of how widespread underperformance is among investors, let's dig down on those performance numbers and look at all active large cap mutual funds. Underperformance among mutual funds is the norm and not the exception, which I have written about in the past. However, this year has been particularly painful for mutual funds. So if we look at the numbers, what I found is that out of 225 active large cap mutual funds, 166 lagged the S&P 500 year to date as of September 30th. And that is a total of 74% of the fund universe underperforming. In this analysis, I've even presented the best case scenario, because I've only included institutional share classes as far as the mutual funds go. But if you run this same analysis on higher fee retail share classes, the number of funds that underperform is even higher. It's really not difficult to figure out why so many mutual funds underperformed. The majority of the funds were underweight the top five stocks of the S&P 500. Whereas for outperforming funds, the majority of the outperforming funds 
or overweight the top five stocks. The top five stocks have generated astronomical returns this year of four, over 40% versus just 2.7% for the S&P 500. It's hard to emphasize enough how huge of an impact the top five stocks have on the performance of the S&P 500 year to date. The next chart that I want to talk about demonstrates that exact point. If I exclude the top five stocks from the S&P 500, the index generated a return of negative 4.64% instead of its actual performance of 2.77%. So any investor with less than 23% allocated to the top five stocks has been hurt badly for sensible risk management and an aversion to excessive risk. But before we move on, let's quickly break down the return numbers a bit further. The top five stocks in the S&P 500 contributed 6.25% to the total return of the S&P 500 year to date. So another way to state the significance of these top stock contributions to the index is that they've generated 225% of the total return of the S&P 500 so far this year. Additionally, the technology sector has generated year-to-date returns of 24.5% and contributed 4.89% to the total return of the index. That is 176% of the total return of the S&P 500. The extreme concentration within the S&P 500 matters and should not be ignored by investors. For one, investors who are invested in market cap weighted large cap index funds or actively managed mutual funds may believe that they are more diversified than they actually are and that their risk exposure is less than it is in reality. Only hyper-vigilant and well-researched investors are likely to notice the level of concentration creeping up in their portfolio. Concentration creep is such a risk because it is stealthy. Most passive investors in, say, an S&P 500 index fund likely take comfort in the perceived diversification of their investments across over 500 individual stocks. However, when 23% of the index is in just five technology-related stocks, those feelings of security are probably not justified. For mutual fund investors, it can be even worse. Mutual fund managers are under extreme pressure to outperform the market. Their job security and the amount of assets in their funds depend on their investment performance relative to the market. The pressure forces many managers to take greater risks than they might otherwise. To perform with or above the market when the S&P 500 is so concentrated requires that mutual fund managers either match the weights of the top stocks or even exceed the weights of the S&P 500 index. My analysis shows that the average mutual fund that is outperforming has an average weight of 24% in the top five stocks. That is serious portfolio concentration. The bottom line of all of this is that many investors are likely not aware 
of the large single stock and sector bets that they're currently making in their portfolio, or the true extent of their downside risk. Up to this point, we have identified the problems with the composition of the S&P 500. Now we can explore how the index might return to its median concentration levels and when this might happen. Investing offers few certainties. However, one certainty that every investor can count on is that markets will always change over time. Historically, periods of past extreme concentration in stocks and sectors within the S&P 500 have not lasted and concentration levels have demonstrated a nice mean reverting pattern. If you want to see that pattern for yourself, you can go back and look at the first chart that we examined. There is no reason to believe that the index will not return again to median concentration levels or even below. Because of the mean reverting nature of stock and sector concentration, we can look at the past two periods when concentration reached a peak which was in 1979 and 2000, to get a better understanding of how the S&P 500 may return to normal this time around. The next chart that I'm going to talk about shows the drawdowns of the S&P 500 since 1979. If you're looking at the chart, there are blue sections that are highlighted that show the period between the peak of concentration and the return to the median concentration levels. For listeners who don't have the charts, I can explain them to you. In both the periods, 1979 and 2000, a peak in concentration was followed by heightened market volatility and large drawdowns or losses. Only one major drawdown did not occur following peak concentration, and that is 2008 in the Great Recession. In 2008, the S&P 500 was at median concentration, but the shock to the economy was so great from a credit collapse and a deleveraging that the market decline was broad-based across individual stocks and sectors. What makes this observation interesting is that it could be argued that the sky-high valuations of individual sectors and stocks is what led to the large market corrections in both 1979 and 2000. Extreme concentration in the S&P 500 is an early sign of asset bubbles in sectors and individual stocks. And in the past, these bubbles have been catalysts for large losses. In 1979, the energy sector was high flying and extreme concentration in both the largest energy stocks and the energy sector was present. Energy stocks became very volatile, and because of their dominance in the index, so did the index. In late 1983, energy stocks corrected significantly, and this created dramatic index losses. But also, the resulting shrinking market capitalization that was a result of those losses brought the index back into balance. A similar story played out in 2000 with technology stocks. Shortly after peak concentration in technology caused by a protracted speculative frenzy, in 2000, the floor dropped out of tech stocks. The massive reduction in technology market capitalization naturally, again, brought the index back into balance. 
I just have one final point to make about the drawdown chart. Large losses usually followed about a year following peak concentration in the S&P 500. However, the process of the overvalued sectors declining in market cap, in addition to more broad-based performance within the other sectors, can take five or more years. It is easy to draw conclusions from this analysis, but caution should be taken as history can be a guide, but markets rarely repeat history exactly. What is clear is that this is an exceptional moment in the markets, given the historically high single stock and sector concentration in technology. I want to wrap up our discussion with some strategies for managing risk in this time of extreme concentration. First, understand that imbalances can last much longer and get more extreme than you could ever imagine. And then the reversion to the mean can take half a decade or more. I have written about this before, but navigating these types of markets is when the most important investing skill, patience, becomes imperative. The best advice I can give is to always invest looking ahead and not behind. Jumping on the big wave late by overweighting the hot stocks after a 40% gain is bound to not end well. Long-term investors must decide whether they're going to try to jump on this monster wave in tech late or look to catch the next big wave. No choice in investing is easy. Catching a wave late means that you will likely experience maximum pain when that wave suddenly breaks. Alternatively, catching a wave early requires patience and a willingness to underperform for potentially years. You must also consider risk. If you are comfortable with the risk of investing 60% of your assets in a diversified stock portfolio, Given the concentration of the S&P 500 currently, that allocation is probably as risky as if you were invested 70% in stocks in more normal markets. If you are close to retirement, reducing risk in this environment is probably prudent. It is better to give up some short-term returns to avoid the devastation of a very large loss late in your time horizon. For longer-term investors, that want to use this as an opportunity to make a tactical trade, it makes sense to potentially underweight the technology sector and overweight energy and financials. If you go back and review the sector allocation chart that we looked at earlier, you will see that energy could be a once in a 40 year opportunity currently. Energy has been reduced to just a 2% weighting in the S&P 500 and energy has taken a beating over the last number of years. These are just minor portfolio tilts. You should not make very large bets on these, but it can make sense to tilt your portfolio towards undervalued or what appear to be undervalued sectors, as that might be the next big wave, if you have the patience to wait for it. Finally, you can add trend following to your portfolio and invest in non-market cap weighted indexes. Many indexes weight by revenue, risk, and many other fundamentals. 
I believe strongly in diversifying across different weighting strategies and adding tactical strategies, particularly in a market like we are currently in. Regardless of the strategy you use to manage risk in these markets, remember that you must be willing to underperform to have the chance to outperform over the long term. Chasing returns is almost always a fool's errand and can be very damaging to your long-term investing success. The ability to see long-term opportunities and have the wisdom to exercise the patience to ignore short-term underperformance is what separates the best investors from everyone else. And that is a wrap for this quarter. Thank you so much for joining me. If you want to view our video series called The Five Secrets of High Performance Investing, then you can find it on our website at threesummit.com forward slash secrets. Also, if you find our investing insights helpful and you've gained something from our podcast, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. That helps us out a lot. And as always, I love hearing from our listeners. So please do not hesitate to contact me directly if you want to talk about investing or any other financial topic that is important to you. Take care, and I look forward to next quarter.